Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Sally Krawcheck had a most enviable career on Wall Street, serving as CEO of Sanford Bernstein by her late 30s, then becoming CFO of Citigroup and CEO of Merrill Lynch Wealth Management. Universally, universally respected. She was the, the most powerful woman on Wall Street. She was known as the last honest analyst and was, covered, uh, was featured on the cover of, of Fortune magazine as such. But in 2011, she left Wall Street uh, behind and started on her path towards entrepreneurship. In 2015, she launched Elevest, a robo-advisor oriented towards the unique needs of, of uh, women, of female investors. Along the way, she met Charlie Kroll, who had just sold Andera. In fact, we met him at that time, too, on the VFA podcast. He had sold Andera to Bottom Line Technologies. Charlie joined Sally, and the two are changing wealth management and financial re- realities for women via Elevest. We're excited to have two accomplished entrepreneurs on the show today in Sally and Charlie. I'm your host, founder of the Mission Driven Group, Jeremy Scheinwald. I'm a longtime supporter, board member, and podcaster with VFA, Venture for America. What is Venture for America, it's a fellowship program for enterprising recent college graduates who launch their careers as entrepreneurs and thus help revitalize America's cities. Think Detroit, Cleveland, uh, Miami, um, and more. After five weeks of training, VFA fellows spend two years in the trenches of a startup in an emerging U.S. city, like I just mentioned, where they learn how to contribute to a high-growth business. Afterwards, VFA provides the mentorship network and resources fellows need to become entrepreneurs. To learn more about Venture for America and to support our work, or even to apply for the fellowship, check out VentureForAmerica.org. And before we start, please remember to like our show on iTunes and to subscribe as well, and to follow me on Twitter at Jeremy Scheinwald. Tell some friends about the show. It'll help us keep going and bring you the content that you enjoy. Now I sound like a PBS drive. Um, And enough of me. Uh, Let's focus on our guests. Here's our interview with Sally Krawcheck and Charlie Kroll. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Charlie, Sally, thanks for, thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. So um, uh, let's get started. We're, uh, you know, we're on the clock here. Um, I guess I'll start with Sally. Um, we'll move back and forth. But, uh, you know, I, I did some, some research. I found a couple of good quotes. There's this <laughs> quote that said that you had, you told Business Insider, there was nothing they could do to me at Solomon oh. Brothers in the 80s that was worse than the seventh grade. And I thought, here's this, you know, yeah. woman who's had this amazing career. And I'm like, is this modest? Is this, or were you like from the seventh grade, people like that, Sally, she's going places. Well, I went to an all-girls school. No, 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 no. There's nothing worse. So I went to an all-girls school in Charleston, South Carolina, where before bullying was a thing, I was bullied right out 
right out. I had the glasses and the braces and the corrective shoes. I wasn't the last one chosen for the teams. I was, you know, thank goodness for Dawn and Stephanie, so I was third to last. But it was really scarring and and actually that year my you know I was a smart kid which is I got teased for it and I I went from being an A student to a C student and I give my mother a lot of credit because she pulled me out of that school sent me to the co-ed school which is where my brothers were going which was a full year ahead doing work a full year ahead of where we were so I essentially skipped a grade and the first semester I was number 1 in the class so my mother you know said I believe in this kid let's go and once I wasn't bullied I was able to go so when I got to Solomon Brothers in the 1980s I'm like bring it guys bring it because I've been I've been to Ashley Hall in the seventh grade There's nothing you can do to me I think Ashley Hall's enrollments just went down <laughs> well, I'm assuming the skills but you know, still was, operating but you know it was interesting I for a lot of years was sort of anti all girls education except I'm an analyst at heart and then you begin to look at the research mm-hmm. And the research is so clear about how positive it can be for girls that I actually sent my daughter to an all-girls school. Hmm. My wife is a big advocate of all-girls summer mm-hmm. camp. She went to one, and yeah. she's like obsessed yeah. with the idea of sending our daughters. And um, now my life is committed to helping women close their gender money gaps. Right. So yeah. I got over it. Okay, well, we're definitely going to get to that. I want to ask you one more question about the past here, one or two more about the past. Uh, you know, you were you were CEO of Sanford Bernstein in your, in your late 30s. Um, you know, and I, I read all these questions that were like, so, you know, how did a woman get to the top? But I mean, yeah. I'm like, that's, and how does anyone get to the top? What was the, what was the, what do you feel was like the defining, what was your thing that got you to the yeah. top of, of Stanford Bernstein at such a young age? Well, um, the fact that I picked the right company to work for. So in an age in which there was still pretty overt gender bias, um, I went to work at a company that I used to call the land of the misfit toys. Each of us was different in some way, fiercely intellectual, and it really was all about the research standing on its own. And did you have research that turned out to be right? Did the clients vote for you? Did you drive trading volume? And just let go a lot of that stuff about, you know, did this person like you or did that person like you? And so based on the merits, I got to be a ranked analyst pretty quickly and then got into the role of director of research. Um, took a pretty big strategic bet as director of research to get us out of investment banking because I thought I and the team um, came to the decision there were inherent conflicts there that were unovercomable. Um, we took a hit for that up until Elliot Spitzer came in and revealed that you know those conf- conflicts were real. And as a result of it, I became CEO of Sanford Bernstein, I think at 36, and then I think CEO of Smith Barney at 37. I'm so, 38 now, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and and what, like Wall Street's such a it's such a particular culture. I feel like it's it's such a particular beat and culture. It's so interesting to me that you could make that transition from Wall Street to you know being an entrepreneur. Like what what made you think that you know you could make that like it's such a dramatic lifestyle and professional transition simultaneously. Well, because I work like a dog, right, Charlie? Right. Like a dog. I mean, I love. I loved what I did as a research analyst. I loved what I did when I ran Smith Barney. Um, I love. I love what we're doing now, and I love the work. So when I was at these big companies, I was never of the. I will now direct people, and they will do the work for me, and mm-hmm. they will come back, and I will critique it. I, I've always been in there, sort of digging through the work. So the so the common theme is compulsion. 
and and neurotic and wanting to you know well if we're going to be truthful if this were wine instead of water prove the girls in seventh grade wrong (laughs) okay Okay. (laughs) maybe i'll get over that one okay (laughs) there's an ex-husband in there you know all of the whole mess of insecurity comes into one big thing we'll invite you back for a second episode you don't i don't Uh, think we need to do that to (laughs) listeners okay so here's another quote from you you said sort of the same theme of of the challenges um you said it's it's, about entrepreneurship it's very hard every day it's harder than running Merrill Lynch. Yeah. What are those challenges that have made entrepreneurship so hard? Well, you can't make many mistakes. I mean, the truth is when you're running a Merrill Lynch, the revenues were, what, $17.5 billion. The bottom line was a couple, $2.5 billion. Let's face it, you can make some mistakes, and the business will be there tomorrow. Let's face it, you've got huge groups of individuals um, such that if one flames out, you know, you've got, oh, you know, 35,000 others. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you have a startup, you're trying to create a business. I always say from dirt. I probably should stop saying that. But you're trying to create something from nothing. And if you make a mistake, you know, you're always a couple of mistakes away from complete failure. And if you choose, you choose the wrong co-founder, which happily in this case I did not, you know, you have a few of the wrong people at the beginning, you're done. Mm-hmm. Right? No matter how great the idea can be, you can you can just run out of money. Yeah. Um so that's why it's harder. I when I was running Merrill and Smith Barney, I slept. Um I'll wake up at, you know, several times a week at three, three thirty AM and, and that's it for the night because hmm. I'm thinking about something, worried about something, excited about something. That's amazing. Um I watched this video where you told the story of the nine-step connection to Charlie. I think starting with Arthur Levitt uh, and um, former SEC chairman, and uh, and going through VCs and angels and executives. So Charlie, once Sally finally found her way to you, was there any founder dating, or when Sally calls you to say, "Okay, what is it I'm in?" Well, it it took me a little while to realize that we were founder dating. Um, <laughs> I, you know, Sally and I were both looking at doing something similar. Um, but coming from very different perspectives, and we both knew people in common who put us together, thankfully. And, you know, I think from the point where we started talking seriously about the idea, um, it it wasn't long. It wasn't a long dating period. But to get to the point where we were both sharing a vision and talking about what a company could look like, uh, you know, that took some doing. Actually, I was so (coughs) unexcited about Charlie that I wouldn't, that I made him come to a coffee shop a block from my home. Like I wouldn't even like go to the flat art district because <laughs> I didn't. I thought I had it set. I thought I don't need a co-founder. I'm totally fine. So he can, he can come to me. That <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a musical. I was so excited about Charlie. What, what, uh, so what changes? I mean, you, you meet Charlie, and what's what's so exciting about Charlie? Oh my god! Well, I hate to say it in front of him. Um, well, he's smart. He's driven. He's seen the movie before. He's um, calm. You know, I tend to break the world into um, stress creators and stress absorbers and the ideal individual that you want to work with, regardless of what part of the business they're in, is someone who's enormously talented and a stress absorber. Um, And so given the fact that he had all of that, had seen the movie, had raised money, done a fintech startup before, and is a stress absorber, was a pretty great combination. So, Charlie, was was narrowing the gender gap something that you 
you know felt strongly about or were, were so even even aware of dare I say I mean uh, when, when you uh, when, when Sally you know approached you is it something or is it something that was like sort of clicked when when she well of course not it? I mean I hadn't come at this from the perspective of of the of the gender gap of being um, a woman of being a woman <laughs> no of course and that's part of what I think makes this a good partnership is that we both come at this from pretty different backgrounds um, you know I had been in fintech my whole career. I had spent, you know, years running a fintech company in the banking industry, and and I've got a technology background, and I love using technology to make a difference and to disrupt things and to make people's lives better. And I, I you know, I, I I view myself as an entrepreneur first, not necessarily a uh, finance person or a technology person. I just like creating stuff out of nothing, and uh, you know, this was an area where I felt that technology really had not touched in many years. Um, and I had just been through a cycle in the banking industry where banks largely went from being offline to being online. That was about a 10-year shift, but from the point where you had to walk into a branch to check a balance to the point where it was natural that you would go online to check a balance, that, that was actually a deliberate industry change, and wealth management hasn't really gone through that same change yet. And so when we sold my last company, Andera, in 2014, I spent a lot of time thinking about what to do next. I didn't want to leave fintech, but I was very interested in the ways that technology was going to be able to disrupt the traditional wealth management industry. And so that's where I started spending all of my time, and those are the steps that led me to Sally. So you, you, speaking of Andera, I mean, you poured so much into it. And when when you were here, I think you'd gone on a trip, you'd gone around the world, uh, if I recall, sailboats or something like that. And and then, you know, you've kind of touched down here. Like, was there any trepidation of, of you know, getting back into the game? Were you like, you know, I still need a, I still need a little more time on the Oh, no, not at all. Nothing. Not at all. In fact, when I left Andera after the acquisition, I thought I was going to take a year off, and I'd actually circled the date on the calendar where I thought I was going to get back to work about a year out. And after about two months, I started twitching. In fact, the trip you're talking that's why I went on that trip, was because <laughs> I was taking the calls, I was starting to set up meetings, I was starting to get in back into things, and, and I just knew I had to spend more time than that. So I actually physically took myself out of the country and backpacked around for a while just so I wouldn't be tempted to get back into it. But when I got back, it was, it was, you know, it was too hard to stay away, and I wanted to get back. Is the second time around any easier? You know, are the, are the challenges just different? Oh, the challenges are different. I mean, the first time around, you don't know what you don't know, and so you can't see far enough out to understand quite what you're up against. It's always in the moment. Here, part of what I'm trying to do is see around corners because we're trying to go really fast, and you, you can only go so fast if you don't see a few steps ahead. And the, you know things always change, but if you can try to anticipate some of those things, then it's good. But it's also scary because when you know what's ahead, you know how much change is going on. So are th is there anything in particular you've done this time around that you're like, okay, you know, I'm, I made that mistake last time. You know, this time I'm doing, I'm, I'm zigging instead oh, of zagging. I, I mean, how much time you got? <laughs> I, I, got, I, got I got time. Sally's going to be out of here at half past, but I got time. We can keep going. Yeah. No, I mean, I can, I can go on and on about that, but I'll give you one example. So one of the things that we're doing differently this time than at my first company was we are being much more prescriptive and deliberate about the culture we want to build. Mm. Um, you know, many first-time entrepreneurs, myself included, take for granted that great cultures emerge. And it turns out if you study the great cultures that are out there, uh, none of them are accidents. Uh, the companies that have established lasting cultures, and, you know, I'm talking about Google and Facebook and um, companies who have well-defined cultures well into the thousands and tens of thousands of employees, they work hard at it. 
They spend money on it. They invest teams and dollars and put focus on it, and they are incredibly prescriptive about it. And so that was a model that it, you know I wanted us to learn from. Um, you know, the first time around at Andera, we I was not prescriptive about the values that we wanted in the company. And so the first 20 or 30 employees, um, they all kind of had some consistency in the culture because I was doing all the hiring. But somewhere along the line, when you put a layer of management in, somewhere 30, 40, 50 employees, if you don't be really clear about what those values are, then all of a sudden people begin to use their own interpretations and you end up with an eight-headed monster. And, you know, it it doesn't kill a company, but it takes a well-defined culture and it makes it more diffuse. And there's something a little intangible about that, but there's no reason why companies can't have cultures that survive well into the hundreds or thousands of employees, and that's one of the things we're trying to do here. So so what kind of culture are you creating? So, you know, the first thing we did is when Sally and I started, we wrote down the values that are important to us, okay? And we can talk a little about those. Um, But then the second thing we said about them is that unlike other companies where these are just, they go on a PowerPoint and then they go on the shelf, we wanted them to be relevant. So what we do now today, even still, is we revisit these values with the team and we ask ourselves hard questions like, how are we doing? And in fact, we just did this at a company offsite last week where we go one by one and we say, how are we doing in this one? And in cases where we are not doing a good job living up to it, we very transparently give the team a safe space to say, you know what, I think we missed the mark on this one and well, here's why. That's right. It's not even just how are we doing. It's where did we live this value and where yeah. did we not live this value? Right. Um, and discuss it as a team. And, and we've had some... Um, long discussions. The one that we tend to spend some time on is personal lives are priority. Well, mm-hmm. we're a startup. And so is that is that always right? Mm-hmm. And is that still the value? And actually, is that still the value we want to have? And if that's not exactly it, how will we shift it and, and change it? Um, so it's 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 a process. Mm-hmm. And what's what I love about what Charlie's done here is it would be so easy to throw this aside. I mean, we are we are going a million miles an hour. Um, we are trying to build things quickly. We're trying to understand our clients more quickly, better, et cetera. Um, and so sometimes to step back and say, okay, you know, three months ago when we did this, did we live up to this value? Um, sometimes it feels like it's not the first thing you want to do, quite frankly. Just for context, how, how, how big is the firm at this point? How many people, when you have a company offsite, is that? Uh, That's about 30 people. 30, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so Sally, you know, I, I think you already talked earlier, you're all kind of, kind of around the fringes of this, you know, talked about how, how hardworking, how unafraid you are to quote as, you know, get your hands dirty, which mm-hmm. you talked about. Like how how scrappy is is Elevest and like I want I'm, I'm <laughs> so like are you scrappy? Yeah. <laughs> He's so scrappy. Okay. okay. Does the fact Let's that our first examples. office had mice give you any indication of scrappiness? The elevator worked occasionally. Okay. The Wi-Fi worked sometimes. <laughs> I mean, you know, I practically sat in our lead designer's lap for a period of time. <laughs> so, so pretty scrappy. We, pretty scrappy. We're scrappy. Yeah. We're scrappy. But you can't afford not to be. I mean, what are you going to do? Put in a bunch of layers of managers telling everybody what to do? We have to be really respectful of the fact that we've got outside investors. They gave us their money. Um, They are entrusting us with that. Um, We have clients. Uh, We are trying to do a great job for them. We're trying to innovate. And if you have people who aren't coming in to roll up their sleeves, 
they got to go someplace else. So you're talking about the, you're talking, you mentioned the investors. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious about the fundraising process. You guys raised two rounds of about $10 million mm-hmm. each. Um, you know, I mean, how was it a conventional fundraising process? I mean, does the does the does the hi, I'm I'm Sally Krawcheck, you know, wear off after thirty seconds? It's like, look, we're venture investors. We want to see our return. Um, what was the fundraising process like? Um, I, I don't know how to answer that in a in a soundbite um, because we I, look. I'd say Charlie has said these rounds have gone well, given his exp- his historic experience. Um, we've had the very good fortune to have some great investors who, who want to be in partnership with us. Morningstar has been a phenomenal investor for us. I can tell you when we started, we had a couple in our sites who we thought these would be great partners. Morningstar actually put a lower valuation on the company than the others did. Uh, but it was important for us to go with them um, because I'd known them because I think their thinking around investing is stronger than anyone else's out there. Uh, but I'll tell you, I've I've definitely had some meetings um, with investors who just do not get it. Just, you know, <clears throat> what do you mean women need something different from men in investing? Just tell them to, you know, work harder, essentially. I mean, they don't say those words, but essentially. And so, yeah, I've had some days, and, and you know the numbers, I'm sure, where women get something like 6% of venture capitalist dollars or 3% or 2%. And so I assure you, every meeting I've gone into hasn't been, oh, this is amazing. We can't wait. Just go for it. Um, where you just, you could feel they, they're not getting it because they don't understand, you know, it's a bunch of guys and they don't understand the potential customer and they don't understand the potential opportunity. And there were moments when I thought, if it's this hard for me, um, mm-hmm. how, you know, how do you, can people get, the, can women get this done? I don't mean to sound like a jerk, but, you know, if you've got the, the, the life experience I've got and, you know, you're trying to describe something that you've worked in for, de- you know, years and years and years, right? right? No better than anyone. And you, you have some dude sitting across the table from you like, no, I don't see it. You're like, you're like, you're kidding me, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, seriously? <laughs> So like, I feel like I might have a better perspective of this than you. <laughs> so in a roundabout way, yeah. I, 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 guess, I guess your answer is there were some slam doors. There were some people who were oh, like, yeah. look, we don't get it. You know, we're, we're not investing. That's it. It's not like you know, you're going to sort of walk in with a good, strong personal brand and expect in, in, in an industry well, look, that you're comfortable in and expect that people are going to line, line up. Right? Right. No, you know, what, what I will say, and, and everybody knows it, connections really help. Right. Networks really matter. Um, you know, walking in cold is is a tough way to walk into any meeting. Um, so, in fact, Kosla, who is our um, lead venture capital investor, as it turned out, the gentleman who um, is our partner there, who is the lead investor there for us, um, I've I interviewed back when I was the director of research at mm. Bernstein for a job, and he remembered. You know, so even sometimes you think it, you know, having even that kind of connection from that period of time, he remembered it. I <laughs> did, didn't come to work for me. It, when he told me that, I said, you're welcome. <laughs> but, you know, having some form of connection, whether it's a warm introduction or somebody you've known, et cetera, it really, really, really matters. Right. And unfortunately, everyone doesn't have it. Right. Um, so raising funds is critical to getting this off the ground. You couldn't have done it any well, other it, You know, a, a company like this, a, whether we call it a fintech company, a wealth management company, et cetera, takes some resources, 
remember there, you know, the technology um, is hard. We rethought investing, so there was an investment there. There are compliance costs that occur, right? I mean, it, this is not yeah. an app, right, that you play on your iPhone. I mean, this is you're taking people's wealth and investing it for them. Well, and there's another piece to it, too, which is that, you know, these clients eventually will be very valuable for us as a business, but it takes a long time. Right. To, this is a recurring revenue business. These clients will be with us for years. And, uh, you know, unlike you know, like say a software business where they get a large license fee up front and then never another yeah. dollar, that's a lot easier of a business to bootstrap because the cash flow is so much better. This is right. a business where it, it ends up being more capital intensive up front, but then uh, much more long lasting over time. Yeah, I, I shifted all my money to a robo-advisor and, and I don't know how they're gonna make a penny off me. For, so I know it's a, it's a, it's a long-term mm-hmm. long mm-hmm. vision for sure. Um, okay, I'm always willing to leave moments in the show where I look foolish in. I'm willing to edit out people where other, moments where others uh, look foolish. So I'll just <laughs> leave that in. Um, okay, let's move off that. So, um, so um, you know, a- another talk about the growth of the business here. You know, Sally told Fortune, this business doesn't need to be ginormous tomorrow. Uh, we're trying to do this for the long term, not for this moment. And of course, VCs aren't known for patience, and they only invest thing- in things that they think can be ginormous. You know, how-, how patient can you guys afford to be? Well, the investors are going to make a lot of money on this. This is not a um, uh, this is not a nonprofit, right? So I, th- I, you know, not to put words in Sally's mouth, but I think what she may be saying is that this is a huge market that's going to take time to grow into, and that you know we certainly as a management team are willing to wait, and we've got investors who sort of understand the nature of the business and who understand the market, and it's not a business that grows over. It's not an app where all of a sudden it goes viral and you have 10 million users after a day. It's going to take time to grow, and that, that's a commitment that we all need to make. Network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. So we're what do you what do you need to get what what needs to be so right? Like what what needs to, to what do you need to nail for this thing to, to get to be ginormous? Well, we, we have a task in front of us because um, I don't think as of, let's call it a year ago, um, almost anybody had heard the concept of the gender investing gap. People knew about the gender pay gap. Um, some people even knew there was a gender expense gap where women have to pay more for the same item that's been painted pink than for the guy's item. Um, but I don't think anybody had heard of it. In fact, you would Google gender investing gap and essentially nothing came up. Um, and so first is the recognition that women invest less than men do, um, and it costs them, depending on who the woman is, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars over the course of her life. So first we have to frame the problem and the opportunity. Then um, the industry, for those who were aware of it, essentially that the solution was, well, either let's have a marketing program for women, So we'll get together, we'll all drink some Chardonnay together, and Bob's your uncle, right? We'll have a newsletter or something. Um, You know, or it was women need more financial education, and so we'll have some educational series. We've approached it very differently and said, well, maybe the problem is not the women. Maybe the problem is actually the product offering. 
um, and perhaps some of the engagement with women. And so we really set out to rethink um, investing for women from the ground up and in some ways that just were wrong, such as that women live longer than men. And so that really needs to be taken into account in their retirement planning. Um, Women's salaries peak sooner than men. That needs to be taken into account. But also through hundreds of hours of research with women, finding out that, you know, guys will invest through jargon and women will stop and and understand it. And that keeps them, therefore, from investing. That men, if you ask them what their risk tolerance is, they don't know. The research is clear. They don't know, but they'll answer the question. And the women will actually stop and go back and try to figure it out. And and so, you know, th- our challenge and opportunity has been, first, we got to identify the issue, educate on the issue, and then find a solution for the issue. And, oh, by the way, it's about people's money and what they want to achieve in life and what they want to do. So th- this is not some small undertaking. This this is pretty big stuff that we're, we're trying to do. So it's, you know, it's there's a process that has to occur. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> what, do you, what do you need to get so right? Oh, uh, so we have to get it all right. It, yeah. We have to get it all right. There's, there's education. And, and, you know, what I think, it's a particularly interesting moment because – where we are too right now is is the education around money is power and and people say and we go yeah I totally got that but you know particularly in a time when a lot of women are recognizing that we haven't made as much progress as we thought we made whether it's the presidential election mm-hmm. let's not talk politics but also that over the past year the number of women who are Fortune 500 CEOs has gone backwards in fact gender diversity on Wall Street in the past 10 years has gone backwards, Hmm. right? So there's a recognition, increasing recognition right now amongst women of, geez, you know, we, that, there's been a lot of talk, but the progress hasn't, hasn't been there. And a means to us making progress, we need to do some things differently. And the thing we want to do differently is we, we ain't going to be fully equal with the men until we're financially equal. And this is a way to get there. So we're in the like we're in the first inning with 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 robo advising. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a few players that have established themselves and their brands. Like, do you see this? Is is the is the wealth manager gone in ten fifteen years? Would you ever advise your daughters to become? Uh, you, have a, you have you have you have a daughter and a son, and you have you have two yeah. kids, one of each, too. one of each. Okay, I've got two daughters. Would you ever advise your daughters to go into wealth management in the conventional model? Like, I'm going to be a investment well, I don't think that's going to die in that way. I, and I think the customers and clients will dictate what they want. And some will say, I want a person, and that's what I want. And some will say, I'm digital only. And some will say, a lot will say, it's some combination um, of the two of them. But um, sure, I'd you know, my daughter, no way my daughter's going to be going to wealth management. <laughs> Simply not going to happen. But sure, okay. why not? <laughs> Charlie, you, you don't see you don't see the 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 industry disappearing. Uh, no, I don't think so. Really? I, I don't think so. I mean, it, it it's like anything else. You're going to see some convergence, and uh, you're not going to take the people out of the business. You're gonna you're gonna augment the people with some technology, and and like Sally said, I think you'll see people at all ends of the spectrum. Wow, that's so crazy. I, I, I'm usually the Luddite, Luddite, like I'm way behind on things. I, I can't even believe I have a robo-advisor. I just, I couldn't imagine doing it any way, any different way at this point. Um, and then I read like today in the in the journal, there was this like meeting of all the investment managers who were like, what can we do to stave off the rise of the ETFs and stuff like that? So I guess I'm seeing something. You, got well, the, you guys are 
you know, more experience than I am in this field. Look, the the um, the traditional financial advisor is an aging gentleman right now. Um, that mo- that exact model, um, you know, will age out. There is one uh, firm that I was talking to not too long ago that has more financial advisors over the age of eighty than under the age of thirty. <laughs> Hello. That's crazy. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and one another one I was talking to, which is one of the longest, largest in the industry, whose average age is sixty. So these numbers start to make sense. So that model of individual only, and you're a white dude, and you're an old white dude, and you're old and a white dude. <laughs> yeah. It's not going to work. There'll have to be some There'll change. Be some changes. From, there will occur some changes from there by uh, definition. Uh, like aside yeah. from just the the orientation towards women, is there any particular you know service advice service part of the service or product that you guys feel like you're really doing quite differently than than the other robot? Oh yeah, advisors? yeah. And so this is a place where I think you know from from the you know you're seeing convergence, right? So the so the traditional model is becoming more tech enabled. The, the place where the robo-advisors are going to have to meet in the middle is around the service delivery, the personalization, the planning. You know, the first crop of robo-advisors have done a really good job of managing your portfolios for you, making the trades, putting you in a diversified portfolio, um, it, it, keeping your fees low. But if you want a will, if you want to tread, they're, they're right. not there for you. Right? Well, but it's, even a financial plan. Or a financial right. plan, right? So. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> putting your investments in context and helping you in your life is not an area where the robo-advisors have yet made a lot of progress. We've spent a lot of time figuring out how to marry the planning with the investment management, and we're continuing to try to push the envelope with that. Um, and I think we're doing that in a way that other people are not. But that's, as you think about sort of what the next generation of robo-advisors are going to be, as they meet in the middle with the, with the traditional models, it's really going to be around that planning component. So, Sally, you've talked about um, how important it is. I saw something from Ruth Bader Ginsburg talking about the same thing this weekend, how important it is to choose a partner mm-hmm. in life. Can you just talk a little more about, about that? About well, I think that's for all of us. Um, it's, you know, whether you're a female or male, it's hard to bring yourself fully to work if there are issues at home. It just is. Um, and particularly then for women where we continue to do more of the child care and more of the housework, and, at, and by more I mean a lot more uh, than the guys do, even today. Um, you know, <coughs> excuse me, where we continue to do a lot more even today, you know, if, if you've got a tough relationship at home, it just it makes it, it, makes it difficult. So, um, you know, I was married the first go-round. We're not married anymore. Um, you know, my ex, as I like to say, my ex-husband's now with my ex-friends, so that worked out nicely for them. And then my second husband, we've been married 20 plus, 22, 23 plus years. And when I got my first really big job running Smith Barney, he stepped back to part-time for me um, so that he could be home with the kids. And we found ways to make it work over the years. Um, you know, for a while we said a parent will be at every major school event. We're not guaranteeing which parent, a parent. Um, a parent will be home every night. We can't guarantee it every night of the year, but and we're not going to guarantee which parent. So I used to rush to the calendar and like block out all <laughs> my trips so that I would take most of the weeks. But you know, we just we just found a way to make it work, and 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 we laughed a lot. I mean, I just think there's this 
this sense among particularly women of I've got to get the right work-life balance and I have to be perfect. And, and, and we say around my house, I am a mediocre mother at best. Uh, like on a good day, I'm mediocre, right? No, on a good day, I'm mediocre. <laughs> I mean, I, so on the one hand, I am an amazing cook. Like really, like like amazing, right? Like my lunch spread would knock your socks off. I have not bought a Christmas present or a Hanukkah present in probably 23 years. And so, you know, I'm great at some things. My husband has to help. But actually, my trick is I just won't buy them. And it drives him so crazy by about December 23rd, he just buys them all. <laughs> I just play chicken with them. But that's you have to have that partnership. Uh, whether you're a male or a female and sort of find those places where each of you are stronger, each of you help out. Gary hadn't cooked in, I promise you, 24 years, but neither have I bought a holiday present. I think I saw Charlie nodding with a good cook. Are you are you familiar with some of these culinary I've skills? seen some of these spreads. No, she's right. <laughs> yeah. I'll do a spread. I like a spread, yeah. So, uh, well, you know, before we were talking about, I read about, I read about this uh, as well. With the, you're a, a, a rabid UNC fan. You're your alma mater. So work... Kids, you know, activity, UNC basketball game. I say UNC basketball. <laughs> Kids. Charlie's nodding. He's cat. <laughs> also true. Cat. cat. You know, I am still like 2016 cannot end fast enough, right? We lost the championship at the buzzer in uh, a friggin' three pointer. Yeah, I went to UVA, and I admittedly you went to I'm not UVA. A, I'm, not a, I'm not a huge, huge uh, basketball fan, but I mean, last year should have been our year. I mean, if, if anything, oh, we killed you in the we killed you in the ACC tournament. Yeah, that got, was amazing. Got, yeah, I yeah. loved it. Yeah, you're such a boring team. I don't know much. But at least about we it, like. <laughs> I don't know why. What? I, why I brought it up? I'm not a big I'm not a big college sports man. Uh, but yeah, but we boring. had last year was like supposed to be our, our year. We like you just play so out. slowly. We were down by like we were up by like twenty points with two minutes left or something like that. Oh, it was the, hilarious. Yeah, I watched okay. it at a bar before right. we yeah before. I, I'm we not a basketball fan either, yeah. and Sally doesn't know how to relate to non basketball <laughs> fans. <laughs> I'm doing my <laughs> best. You have to, you have, to have a hobby. Fans. You have to have a hobby. <laughs> it's interesting, and it, it is really is true because it takes your mind completely off of work right. for whatever that period of time is, and it's it's nice to have. Something that just is a complete escape, right? Charlie, what's that escape for you? I mean, because because one of the values is putting your you know, putting your personal life or what was it? It was having personal life priority. Balance. Personal yep. life is a priority. When, well, my kids are young enough that right. they're a pretty good good hobby for me now. Yeah, how old are your kids? Seven and nine. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, so you have a book coming out. I do. Let's just I'm just going to dot dot dot. So you, you can tell us about the book. Yeah. So it's uh, it's called Own It: The Power of Women at Work. Um, and it's not just about investing your money. In fact, there's not really only one chapter about that. But the underlying idea is that while we haven't made as much, we were talking earlier, we haven't made as much progress as women in business as maybe we expected we would, that really the stars are aligning for us at this stage. One, business is changing. Um, so the skills that really helped one be successful in business yesterday, the command and control, I have the information and you don't, just doesn't exist anymore. It's really now we've all got the information. How do we analyze it, figure it out? Um, so, you know, if you actually look at some of the skills women bring to business, the puck's coming to us on that one. The second thing is we have a lot more options that if there were gender biases at companies, if, you know, as a woman five and 10 years ago, you could go to another company or you could go home. Now you have a lot more information to go to another company that treats women people well or you can start your own thing 
or you can have a non-traditional career in which maybe you go part-time in freelancing. And and the third thing that's maybe not changing, but but where we're really recognizing our powers, we have a boatload of money. $5 trillion of investable assets. We control 80% of consumer spending. We're more than half the workforce. And increasingly, we can use that money in a powerful way. We can use buy-up index to go to the grocery store and buy from companies whose values align with ours. We can you know, invest in companies whose value align with ours. So you just sort of step back and look at this, say the world is changing. We have more options. We've got tons of money. Now, tell me why I have to act like a guy all the time at work. <laughs> and uh, and then, of course, it intersperses it with all my anecdotes from all those years on Wall Street. <laughs> okay. Well, look for it. It's coming out in, right in the new year. Oh, my gosh. Right? It's coming out January 17th. Right. Okay. Um, it's a picture of me on, like, on, on a ladder. Can, me I've, I've on a ladder. Yeah. yeah, I know. That's you can weird. You pre-order on, uh, on Amazon. Pre-order. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So you talked about the things that you said you're, you know, you're up at night, and you also said that Charlie is what you call him. You call him a stress absorber, I think. Or, mm-hmm. uh, so, Charlie, you're a pretty chill guy. Um, is there any, what's keeping you up? At, are you up at night at all? Am I, hey, Charlie, am I a stress absorber or a stress creator? <laughs> um, I, I'd seen you do both. Yeah. I've seen you do both. Uh, no, I sleep pretty well. Yeah. I sleep pretty well. I, um, I, years ago, I, I went through some episodes where I, I was so stressed out that I couldn't sleep. And, and those periods when you're running an early stage company that has no money, that has no prospects that nobody believes in and nobody cares about, and you're always weeks away from missing a payroll, uh, that that changes you. And if you can live through that, from my perspective, then you know everything else becomes at least put into perspective. And so, no, I sleep just fine. Yeah. The I was mentioning before the show, one of my favorite anecdotes, you'll have to listen to the last podcast for it, but how, how close Charlie came to, to missing, um, to, 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 he needed mm-hmm. funds badly and found a very innovative way I'll leave it at that. Teaser the for the last episode. Yes, yeah, yeah. Found a very innovative way to to, to collect uh, to collect those funds and, and get a return for an investor. So, mm-hmm. um, so Sally, what's keeping you up at night? What what is just 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 so much to do? Yeah, and and sometimes so much excitement about it. I mean, and and Charlie knows this. Um, I wake up with ideas, and and I don't. I think I've almost trained myself that almost every morning I wake up thinking, I'm so passionate about what we're doing and so excited about it because we can have such an incredible impact on women and their families and their lives. Um, so it's really exciting and, and we're able to do, you know, we're operating a business that no one else has conceived of before. So we, you know, this is sort of wide open for us. And so I just find, I, I wake up with about four different things. I write them down I rush to the kitchen I get coffee I, I keep writing and and after I'm fully awake I find that typically four out of those four things are really not very good ideas but every once in a while one of them pops up and, and you know it, Charlie how many times a week do I come and hey I woke up this morning oh, God, with a it's all the time and, and something that, <laughs> oh God <laughs> no, you know something that, that people are sometimes surprised about about Sally I mean something if you don't know Sally and you don't know the story of the company uh, I, people ask me sometimes, what's it like to work with Sally? Is she just sort of like a chairman who floats in and out sometimes? <laughs> and, and I say, oh, you have no idea. Um, uh, Sally is all in on this. All and, in. And, and unlike um, uh, what some people may think, I mean, she is, I mean, talk about being scrappy. I mean, you want to talk about some of the things you do for this company? Let's talk about them. <laughs> like what? Like write the articles? Like write the articles. Like <laughs> Sally, like 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 Sally is a content machine. I mean, she has ideas and she expresses, and she 
writes every article that is attributed to her is something that she writes and and she will be in there with the design team moving pixels around on the screen <laughs> she'll be talking about the messaging moving words around i mean she is all in on this mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah all in <laughs> in fact we were laughing because i got it i think i can say this um from the marketing team this weekend i got an email from the most junior who gave me a list of six things I was supposed to do this weekend, CC'd the rest of the marketing team, and I forwarded Charlie. And I said, can we change my title to co-founder, CEO, and junior marketing associate? <laughs> so, Sally, I'm, I'm, I want to make you put your old hat on for one second here. You know, we we won't talk about the election too much, but you know, you were on Wall Street when during the financial crisis, and you know now there's talk of all sorts of deregulation. I find it interesting, like some some um, you know CEOs on Wall Street are saying, no, let's like leave this alone. There was an article in the Journal about that today. You know, are you is that concerning to you? Deregulation is a good crazy concerning. A, yeah, okay. I mean, crazy, right? It's interesting again because when I was a research analyst, I covered Wall Street itself. And then was in senior levels on Wall Street and was CFO as well of a, of a big bank. And, and I have not gone back and, and done the calculations, but, um, I, you know, if you think about these big banks in Wall Street earning their cost of capital through a cycle, it's been a long time. And I and for, forget about everybody talks about oh they used to get ROEs of sixteen percent or they used to have ROEs of eighteen percent. That no no, they had that at the peak. There was then the trough. So at the trough, I'm going to get this off by a little bit, but not by a lot. Merrill Lynch lost fifty five quarters worth of earnings in one quarter during the financial crisis. Why don't you guess who earned more in the ten years up to the financial crisis? Merrill Lynch or little old Sanford Bernstein? I think I know where you're going with this. Sanford Bernstein, because we didn't lose it all. <laughs> right. Right? And somehow, for whatever reason, people write off those big losses as a one-time thing, except they occur again and again, right. and they've gotten bigger and bigger over time. Um, so the fact that, as there was talk about Trump deregulating the big banks – and the stocks are going up. I'm like, because it turned out so well the last right. go round. Um, now, of course, the regulations that don't make any sense that people can get rid of um, without much effect. But you know, the, the you know these banks are incredibly important to our economy, and to rush back to deregulation, I think, would be a mistake. Okay. Um, let's end on a on a forward looking note here. Um, so. Um, Open-ended question here. Where where do you want to take Elevest in, in the next couple of years? Well, look, I think the first thing is is continuing to make women and people, but women aware that there is this gender investing gap and that it costs folks a lot, that it costs women, as we mentioned, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars over their lives, but it costs their families. It costs the economy. It costs society because what happens when you – have more money, then people spend more money, right? And the economy goes. It, It is, if we can close these gaps, we can actually go a long way towards, um, you know, closing the retirement savings gap, which generally is a woman's issue because mm. we, we live longer. And so, you know, 
what I first and foremost think about before we think about we want the company to be this big and we want to get this kind of return and da 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 is this awareness. Um, and also the awareness that, that I think 2017 will become the year that financial feminism becomes a thing and that we be, really begin to recognize that this money is power and power to do good. So that's what I'm focused on as well as getting out the next blog post <laughs> and the next newsletter. Charlie, shall I let Sally have the last word? You want the last word? That's it? Charlie, Charlie that's it. <laughs> Gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, guys, thanks so much for being here mm-hmm. and for bringing so much energy to the show and, uh, and for telling, telling your story. It's great. an exciting one. Thanks for having great. us. Great. The MLB app, you can get baseball your way. Pick your favorite team, your favorite players, and get customized highlights, stories, and breaking news right on your home feed. Follow the action with Game Tip, where 3D replays add another dimension. Plus, notifications can keep you connected to every pitch, every hit, every game. The MLB app, baseball your way. Download it now for free from the App Store or Google Play. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trade parts used with permission.